Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're vegan for ethical reasons and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, fall in love with passionate, thought-provoking and inspiring animal rights leaders who will help you find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement however small or big it is. Today we are going to talk about the negative impact of working in a slaughterhouse. And let me introduce this topic by giving you some cold statistics from an excellent article called For Slaughterhouse Workers, Physical Injuries Are Only the Beginning, published by the Organization on Labor. And this is a US organization, but my belief is you can expect the same reality everywhere. The article reads, slaughterhouse workers earn a medium average of just about $14 and disproportionately come from marginalized and underserved populations. 80.8% of frontline meatpacking workers are people of color, more than half were born outside of the US, and over one quarter come from households with limited English proficiency. Nearly half of all Slaughterhouse workers live below 200% of the poverty line. In 2015, 5.4% of slaughterhouse workers experienced a job-related injury or illness. Many of these injuries were severe. Over a 30-week period from 2015 to 2017, there were 550 serious injuries reported in U.S. slaughterhouses, including 270 incidents requiring the amputation of a body part. For many slaughterhouse workers, physical injuries only scratch the surface of their suffering. A growing body of evidence has emerged surrounding the intense psychological toll that slaughterhouses have on the workers that allow them to operate. As one former slaughterhouse employee wrote for BBC, I didn't suffer physical injuries, but the place affected my mind. At night, my mind would taunt me with nightmares, replaying some of the horrors I'd witnessed. To discuss this topic, I have with me Varun Joshi, who is one of those people contributing to expanding the body of evidence related to the psychological impact of working on a slaughterhouse. Varun, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is actually the second time that we have recorded this conversation. We had some technical problems the first time that's podcasting for you. So thank you so much for accepting to do this a second time. Absolutely. My pleasure. So Varun, you're here because you're studying slaughterhouses and slaughterhouse workers. Why did you decide to choose this field of study? What was your journey from uh, being uh, interested in animal rights to making it into activism work? I like the way you you asked that question because uh, I reflect on that almost every single day. It's like, why did I decide to pick a topic like this? Because um, there's not really any money in it. Um, I am up against what I feel like is the world, but just Canadian culture. I'm, I'm based out of uh, Brampton, Ontario. It's part of the greater Toronto area. And um, this is a very, we're in a very agriculture heavy province, a province and country that thinks big beef is a part of its heritage and one of the you know foundational stones of the country, which it is along with dairy and just overall exploitation and uh, violence against animals. And, for me, I decided to pick this topic because um, I'm, I'm against any kind of violence against people for any reason and animals, land. And uh, when I became vegan, I realized like when I wake up every day, I need to be doing some kind of job that aligns to that value. Because if it does, and I just I can't live with myself. Like once you once you become aware of certain atrocities in the world, whether it's related to sexism, racism, discrimination against someone because of I don't know, just for whatever reason, you can't just ignore that and go on with your day. And in the same manner, you know, once you realize what's happening to animals, I I feel like 
the average vegan like no you, you can't just you can't just turn away and uh i'm not saying every single vegan has to become an activist it's just it's 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 hard to go on with daily life like you're it was for me as well so i figured well, what am i good at I, I thought well i don't know about good at but i'm passionate about arguing i love to talk um academia is important to me i pride myself on you know being a man of science always trying to find the truth and at the time i was going vegan i was in the pursuit of higher academia i was finishing up my second undergraduate degree and um i realized law school isn't an option for me because i was recovering from a concussion certain symptoms made it hard for me to study and i'm like well, what else can i do what's a little bit less strenuous and um a master's in criminology seemed a little bit more feasible um just there's more reading a lot of thinking but not as much uh uh, it's it's a different type of uh, mental toughness that I felt kind of I was engaging with. And I realized, well, if I'm going to do grad school. What am I passionate about? I realized I'm passionate about more than anything animals and focusing on why it is humanity as a whole likes to mess them up. Why humanity as a whole likes to be violent towards them. And I always used to think, like, how can someone slaughter animals? Like, what makes someone want to slaughter an animal? And uh, there's lots of reasons to that, but that's kind of the initial question that got me interested in, in the first place. And I did my master's in criminology where I just I just dwelled right into it under my mentor at the University of Windsor and uh, Dr. Amy Fitzgerald. Anyone who's listening to this, please go check her workout. And I haven't looked back since. No, that's a lie. That's a lie. I have looked back. I look back several times, almost every day being like, why am I doing this? But it's to answer the question in one word, I I can't live with myself if I don't do something. And I figured, let me give academia a chance as much as I can. Let's try to influence some policy with research. If that doesn't work, we'll, we'll worry about that later. But let's let's try to do activism through academia. That's why I kind of decided to study slaughterhouse work. So you mentioned now many times how this field of study is challenging, um, partly because you're in Canada and the environment is not propitious for this kind of line of study, but also because it is hard to study the exploitation of animals. I feel like you're, I, I talked with many activists who are exposed to footage of animals being tortured or killed, and that is a grind. It is difficult on your mental health. So explain what are the challenges of studying animal exploitation, trying to answer those questions you posed? I think the biggest obstacle is every single person from the political spectrum, every gender, every ethnicity, every name, any kind of social uh, um, aspect of some person. Everyone in the world is against you. Even other vegans might be against you. And I say that not in a way to sound somewhat arrogant, but I genuinely believe that trying to protest and create a more just world for, for animals is more revolutionary than anything else this planet has ever seen because we've been fighting and killing each other for, for centuries, for millennia. And no one's, I mean, people have thought to do something about animals, but since the dawn of time, there's been progress in almost every part of social and civil society, except for animals. With animals, we still always find a way to make it acceptable to allow them to be victims of violence for whatever means it is. And it doesn't matter which circle you're in. It's always going to be animals getting the, excuse my language, shit end of the stick. There's always going to be, oh, we can make conditions better for them. We can focus on that after we focus on, on issue A or issue B. And for me, it's just, it's not good enough. It's like, no, I refuse to participate in violence against people due to their race, ethnicity, gender, class, but in the same you know, same way, I refuse to participate in violence against anyone, any being based off their species as well. So I want, you know, that current mentality. If I don't want to hurt someone if I don't have to. There's no point to doing so. But I would like to see people extend it to animals as well. And the fact is, people don't. Like, I, th I think about my workplace. I love where I work right now. Started a new job three weeks ago. We have a lot of anti-oppression training, which I love, man. I'm all about that. I, I want to make sure that we don't reproduce any wrongs that we might unintentionally or intentionally commit against anybody, whoever it might be. But I needed to extend to animals. And I noticed um, my cohort, some of them asking, how does that look like in practice? And like, it's frustrating. I can't really just say everyone go vegan because that's not enough. <laughs> Going vegan isn't enough. 
you know, if we want animal liberation, there, got, there has to be something more. We have to be anti-species, anti-violence. And, and it's just, it's such a large conversation to have. You don't even know where to begin. So I think that's what makes it so difficult just at a really macro level. And then at a micro level for myself, you know, I'm, I have history with mental health and depression, anxiety. Um, I, I hope this isn't like trigger warning for anyone who, you know, just on topics of violence and, and severe mental health stuff. But I tried to kill myself in, uh, in March. Um, just a really bad series of events that my mental health was not really well. And a part of that was triggered by me working on a chapter of um, the violence against cows in India and how people that are for it and against it are missing the bigger picture. There's just violence being reproduced everywhere. And I took a break from uh, work and school to write that chapter. I ended up traumatizing myself unintentionally <laughs> without knowing. And, and it becomes one of those situations where if you aren't seeking therapy actively, you aren't making sure you're exercising, eating right, doing whatever you need to do to be in a healthy mental space, you might really mess yourself up if you try to focus on anything animal related because you're ultimately looking at violence. You're reading about violence. Like I, in my master's, um, looking at slaughterhouse footage in an attempt to get myself familiar with what's happening, I kind of traumatized myself there. I stopped doing that. I have to limit myself to just reading stuff. Like it still take a toll. So at the micro level for me, and God knows how many people, maybe yourself, Ryan, maybe anybody, like just encountering these things at an individual level, whether it's a book, a movie, maybe you're walking outside at a mall and you see hunting gear somewhere. It's like you're encountering violence everywhere. <laughs> so I, I think that's what the most difficult aspect of it is. I, I think that was a very long way to, to say that. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Thank you for uh, sharing this experience and making it into a warning for people who want to get involved more deeply in the animal rights cause. Yeah, it Reminds me of that uh, quote from Nietzsche. Nietzsche, I think in English is pronounced, where he says, uh, if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gaze at you. It's You're not unaffected when you expose yourself to that kind of evil. Yeah. And what about the more technical challenges about your, your study of slaughterhouses. I know that in our first conversation, you made a very good point about how slaughterhouses are those isolated places that are very hard to get to, to observe, to study in general, and it is done in purpose. So can you um, expand on that? I got you. So there's a, a few different angles which we got to address this question through. The first thing being just physically slash geographically, it is very difficult to study slaughterhouses. Ever since slaughterhouses came into the scene in the late 1800s in North America, they started off in urban areas and metropolitan places like Chicago and very urban cities, just cost effective. Problem is, unlike any other industry in the world, no other industry comes nearly close to at least no other for-profit industry comes as close to slaughterhouses when it comes to the waste that's produced and the stimuli that the surrounding individuals are going to know about. Think about the smells, think about the actual noises, think about the logistics of getting things in and out and all the pollution. It is very difficult to keep that all contained, especially as more and more people live in a concentrated areas. So historically, slaughterhouses have slowly started shifting outwards and spreading outwards in more isolated regions, partially to keep themselves away from the masses. And this is then for a variety of reasons. You avoid scrutiny, less people can see anything that might happen that goes on in there. There's less regulation from external bodies. If anyone wants to do anything, they have to go usually a distance to access this. And when it comes to waste, it's a little bit easier to handle that. Any of the effluent that comes out of slaughterhouses, including blood, body parts, you name it, whatever it is. It's a little bit easier for owners of slaughterhouses to deal with. Easier for them to dispose with it in uh, non-legal ways or ways that are convenient to them, such as, but not limited to, spraying blood in nearby fields. That happens in Canada, in the USA, things like blood, feces, a mixture of body parts, they're 
essentially heated up and sprayed into nearby fields as well, but they end up in uh, local homes and regions that are close to it. People usually living close to this, uh, they could be workers at the slaughterhouse, but they don't necessarily have to be. But regardless, they get screwed because they face the smells that this nastiness is produced from the slaughterhouse. So um, in regards to like the technical difficulty, just the geographical proximity, lack of proximity is, it makes it very difficult to engage with them, whether you're an academic or you're the average person. At the political level, from a Canadian perspective, I'm sure, I know it's a little bit worse in the USA, but it's still pretty bad in Canada. And I'm sure it's awful everywhere in the world. But uh, just speaking from my personal experience, I believe it's called Bill 156, for, uh, passed by the, uh, it's, I believe it's being debated right now. I haven't checked just because life's happening and it's hard to keep track of these things sometimes. Um, I really should though. So Bill 156, um, it's, I believe it's a biosecurity bill. <laughs> uh, it's a fancy bullshit term for, um, uh, people that defend animal agriculture to, uh, not people, the industries behind animal agriculture. This was the first bill that was attempted to be passed during the pandemic, when the pandemic was raging on in 2020. And uh, it's intended to protect farm animals from biosecurity risks, but it is essentially an ag gag law, which is designed to stop anybody from the public from revealing whatever happens inside of slaughterhouses. Um, People that try to do that can be met with fines, potentially jail time, just some kind of label from the law, from the criminal justice system, which can just make their lives more difficult. And this is the worst part of all the whole thing. It's done in the name of protecting animals, but I mean, you can't protect animals from anything when you're ultimately harming them yourselves. But at the political level, the point of me bringing that bill up is I'm operating under a government that doesn't care. Not only does it not care, it wants to, it will violently defend whatever it's currently doing to animals. I attend the University of Guelph. Uh, this is the most animal agriculture heavy university I can think of. On my first day, I, my first class was in the animal science building. And I'm like, my program's in sociology. Why on earth am I, why am I in this building? And, you know, when it comes to funding, uh, I guess this goes away from political, more towards kind of educational slash social level. Um, I'm going to be, there's more scholarships available. There's more funding opportunities available for the animal agriculture sciences. Um, and these projects, they're not about the rights and justice of animals. It's about their welfare in regards to how can we treat them as an object in the nicest way possible. They're essentially trying to find a way to do something inherently wrong in the most nice, compassionate way, which is a fundamental contradiction. If you were to go, anyone were to go to the University of Guelph website right now and look at what their graduate students are doing, I don't think they should be harassed or anything like that. I don't want anyone listening to this to go harass them. I'd love for people to email them and ask the students, hey, so how do you do this to the animal ethically with concern for the animal when you don't need to um, have those conversations going? But like there's more resources for these for these people that essentially mess up animals. Um, so and, and and that leads to like the fourth kind of angle, like economically, this ties in with school. But there's more money invested into big dairy, big beef, big chicken, big whatever animal agriculture related. The resources they have to fight. Their, this battle is a lot more than anyone like myself would have. Anyone like partners of this movement, like Animal Justice, which is one of Canada's premier uh, legal advocacy groups for animals, uh, PETA, Mercy for Animals, you name it. No one has as much resources as the big animal agriculture industries. When you think about those four factors I've listed, and I'm sure there might even be more, like there's human factors. Like culturally, it's in human culture, almost in every culture in the world. You know what? No, I'm going to say confidently in every culture in the human world in history um, to mess up animals. And I just say mess up as another way for violence. I just I get tired of saying the same thing. But there is those factors. And I want anyone who's listening to this, think about other ways that I haven't mentioned, including people, people, geography, economy, education, political. Think of other ways that animals are messed up in your vicinity. I'm, there's probably more. I'm, I'm definitely missing some. Which makes even more admirable what you're doing because you're participating in making the body of literature and studies about slaughterhouses, about animal exploitation from your point of view, from the point of view of a vegan, bigger, greater, when you're confronted with against all of those odds, against all of those forces that stop you from doing what you're doing um 
what is it like to to be an animal rights activist in a university devoted to serving the animal industry? I, I feel like you must feel like a anomaly in in this college community. First and foremost, I feel like a piece of shit. Like I, I and I don't know how to say that more more politely because if I had stayed at the University of Windsor, I feel like I would have been doing better work just because I'm not a part of a university that's so frankly disgusting in my mind when it comes to supporting these kind of things. But at the same time, it's important that I acknowledge I am at the University of Guelph, which is very animal agriculture heavy, but it's got to start somewhere. So if, if, if there's no one else who's focusing on, you know, ways to address animal justice, I don't think I'm the first. Don't hope I'm not the last. And wherever they are, whichever pockets of society that you're in, where you know you're you're dealing with a very very uphill battle, I'm not saying go for the hardest thing, but don't shy away from that challenge as well. It needs to happen because I I've been able to raise questions and concerns and make comments that no one else is going to think about in the sociology department at my university. And if I wasn't there, maybe someone does. Maybe someone doesn't. We don't know, but we do know that because I am there right now, I can raise those. But I try not to be too hard on myself there. It is hard not to be hard on yourselves, though. Uh, but in regards to how I feel generally about it, like it, it, it sucks because a lot of my cohort, my peers, a lot of initiatives on campus are about making sure we don't harm humans. We don't harm people or the environment based on any arbitrary social aspect, you know, race, gender, class, whatever it might be. And I, I'm all about that. I'm all about that it very rarely extends to animals. And when it does, it's superficial. It comes in the form of animal welfare, which you're still hurting them. And it's just, uh, disheartening is probably the most appropriate word. Frustrating and disheartening. Well, that reminds me of a conversation I had with Dr. Heath. Uh, she's a veterinarian. She's an activist. She founded an organization called Our Honor. And I recorded a conversation with her called uh, why do veterinarians eat their patients? And she mentioned how in uh, vet schools around the world, there is always so much um, mistreatment, unethical treatment of animals, but that this is changing. A lot of colleges are now considering the the well-being of the animal when they are studying that animal. So for instance, there is no vivisection or things like that in order to form the the body of uh, uh, future veterinarians. And I told her, well, that's great. That means we will have more vegan vets in the future. And she said, well, I, I would, you know, recommend to go to the worst colleges out there who have not adopted those ethical standards because we need to bring the fight to those people. So if you're vegan and you want to become a vet, actually go and choose a school where it is harder to be a vet. So maybe this advice applies to you, you know? I'm, I'm glad you bring that up first because I forgot to mention that, you know, Guelph has one of the few veterinarian colleges in, uh, in Ontario my province and you know when we people often forget at least in Canada there's a significant portion of uh, vet students people in animal sciences that end up as uh, vet techs or vets working in the slaughterhouse industry <laughs> or animal agriculture and it's it's horrific and I think I love what you said man like just what it's true like you know going somewhere where you're comfortable is important mental health is important feeling human connection all of that's important but there's also something very strong powerful about sometimes you have to go after places where there's not weak points established in the enemy and this enemy of ours is violence against animals and and if that mean i don't know what that looks like in practice for everybody but i i agree man there's there's definitely some value in that very very important value Talking about Dr. Heat, she recently tagged me on um, a post on Instagram where it was a news coverage of a high school 
in a very rural area. Well, is now home to a pretty unique program with its very own meat processing facility. Yeah, they didn't teach me this one in school. Fox 23 Spencer Humphrey spent the morning touring the new facility at Hartshorn High School. And they were very proud of themselves because they had created like a small slaughterhouse um, pro processing facility inside the high school. It's like walking behind the counter at a butcher shop. I would say that we've got just about everything in here that most uh, processing plants would have. To train their students to become the future generation of worker in the slaughterhouse industry. For these uh, instructors, it's a one-of-a-kind chance these. to mold the next generation of leaders in a vital industry. It's fun to see the gears turn. It's just fun watching them grow. And I commented on her post saying, okay, I understand that the slaughterhouse is doing this because they have one of the worst, uh, what's it called, the... Um, Turnover rates. Turnover rates in any industry ever. But I don't understand why this community is condemning their youth to a professional, a horrible professional life that will traumatize them. So can you talk about what it's like to work for a slaughterhouse? Why do workers in slaughterhouses quit? You know, before we address this this topic or issue. I mean, we have to always consider our, our social geographical context, right? Like when we think about Canada, it's a country founded on violence against animals, starting from colonial times, you know, settlers from Europe were promised land. If they farmed that land, they were re receive uh, government support for ha having animals and converting indigenous wildlands into farmland. Now, I disagree with even indigenous relations to animals because they're still hunting, fishing, might be sustainable, but there's still an uneven relationship with animals. But that is still measurably better than a European relationship towards animals that came over to Canada um, before Canada became a country in, during colonial times. And uh, this country is founded on that now. I don't know the region in which that high school, you, I thought you, you, the high school you said that's going to uh, be having its own slaughterhouse yes. facility in the school? Yes. Like, um, so they're not, they don't have to kill the animal, but mm -hmm. they get like um, corpses that they have to cut. Oh, okay. Okay. So in like, in that regards, like just when we think about that example, that like that's, that's related to that colonial crap of bringing cows over farming and all that, because Ensuring that you have land to raise animals, treat them as objects, inflict violence upon them, to do what you want with them for your own goals, man. That thing, that, it's a mentality that's lasted since then till now, and it's ingrained in Canadians throughout the country, Americans throughout their throughout the whole world. And something like farming animals is seen as benign, normal, harmless, but not just those like more neutral terms, but positive, bond building, all these, insert whatever positive adjective you want. And it's honestly pretty horrific because when you do look at the literature about what abattoir workers go through, it's messed up. Abattoir workers have some of the highest turnover rates and because you don't need much science to back this up, even though the science does back this up. But it's like, no one wants to kill animals for 40 hours a week. Now you can make the argument, no one wants to do anything for 40 hours a week. But the problem is with you know things like general labor or or whatever other profession, there is a way to do it ethically to a certain extent. There's a way where you can have consenting individuals involved. You can have labor negotiation. You can have some semblance of justice and some kind of equilibrium that doesn't exist in an abattoir, that doesn't exist in, in, in dairy houses or, or egg health, whatever you want to call them. There's no way to kill an animal that doesn't want to die ethically. And when you're doing that 40 hours a week, um, you're engaging in a lot of violent processes. And it causes negative consequences for everybody. So, you know, those high turnover rates, they come as a result of physical injuries. Uh, demand for meat is increasing throughout the world day by day. You know, there's more vegans than there are ever. But the world's also consuming more meat than it ever has in human history. So industrialized meat production, you know, people want meat more and more and more. Even small-scale farming, they have to upscale just to kind of survive. And that results in injuries. It's impossible to do any kind of work at a, 
a, a constant exponential upscaling without having to cut corners. And those corners often result in workers being harmed. The workers that are often working in abattoirs are often people that have English as a second language, people that have um, a lesser position to be able to negotiate better labor rights from, whether they're migrants, they could be here on temporary uh, worker uh, permits, they could be here illegally, they could be refugees, they could be a lot of things, but they're often in a less lesser position to negotiate better working conditions. So they're more likely to you know, when they do get hurt, they can't really do much about it. You either shut up and work or you lose a job. And that means you lose a paycheck, can't provide for your family, a whole bunch of issues there. So you know, the high turnover rates, um, the people that do end up sticking around are those that kind of have to. They don't really have any other choice. But people do leave in significant droves because it's very, very violent work physically. And then mentally, people have to understand that when you're working in slaughterhouses, and I'd encourage everyone to read a book by uh, Dr. Timothy Pachirit. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. It's called uh, Every, I believe, Eight Seconds. Um, it's an ethnography about a uh, slaughterhouse. And uh, um, every 12 seconds, there you go. <laughs> um, but trigger warning as well. There's a lot of graphic stuff in that book. Like make sure you're mentally in a healthy place before reading that. But when you work with animals, you're not just working with like a pen. You're not just working with a cup. You're working with a living, breathing being that's going to react with surroundings. Animals in slaughterhouses look for compassion and protection, and they turn to workers that are ultimately going to be killing them and harming them or, or whatnot. And, you know, workers documents saying that they realize that they have to do something really messed up to this animal. And one of the only ways they can do that is by mentally shutting themselves off, disrupting their natural connection with that animal, breaking that bond and trying to emotionally remove themselves from that. You can't do that for 40 hours a week without negative consequences. You, you result that, that reason I say that is you see communities that have, that house uh, slaughterhouse workers. They experience higher rates of uh, mental health uh, issues, higher rates of violence, higher rates of substance abuse. That doesn't mean if you work in a slaughterhouse, you're gonna become a violent offender. It does increase your chances though, not to become a violent offender period, but to be in a situation where you're engaging in unhealthy behaviors that are not part of a pro-social lifestyle. Things like substance abuse, things like having mental health issues. And then when you add to the fact that if you're working in a slaughterhouse, you're a community in a slaughterhouse, you might be in a geographically isolated region. Those regions, usually rural, don't have the best access to health services, mental health services, labor relations services, any kind of service. It's just a recipe for disaster. So, you know, you have the physical injuries that come along, but you're also engaging in some kind of emotional warfare against yourself when you kind of train yourself to uh, do messed up things to animals that you're going to form bonds with. It's it's very difficult to not form. I'm not saying you have to go love a goat or a cow or a dog or whatever it is they are, but you, it, it's very difficult to not form bonds with any animal that you're around. You know, if someone who isn't an animal lover, they see like a, someone's dog being kicked or beat up. They're not going to just stand there idly, say something, they'll do something about it. Or they'll feel something. That's the thing, that feeling that you, you're going to feel because another being is being hurt. You have to constantly tell yourself that that doesn't matter. And there's a variety of different mental gymnastics, coping techniques that might that people might engage in to do that. And, and you know, a part of those results in toxic norms of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a person to that provides for their family, where, you know, a good, strong man should go kill that cow. It's a rite of passage for men. We see that kind of crap in like the 4-H program. You see that kind of crap in that high school you probably mentioned where, you might be taught it's completely fine to now what you're doing here is you're providing a greater good for society you're insert whatever excuse that's how slaughterhouse work messes up individuals and then eventually in larger skills starts off with physical injuries but also emotional damage that you develop really really negative coping mechanisms to try to deal with and those coping mechanisms become proliferated throughout society until they become stereotypes and norms that we think are all right and we start viewing as just benign attitudes towards animal agriculture. Would you say that the workers of the slaughterhouses are one more victim of this industry? Yes. And I, I just want a big disclaimer out there, right? When it comes to politics, I am so far left, like calling me a liberal is right wing. <laughs> and a lot of friend circles I'm in, advocacy groups I'm in, you know, they're all, they want to defend human rights. And I'm all about that. They want to defend worker, working class rights. I'm all about that as well. 
when you bring animals to the equation, it's very easy to put them on the, on towards the side and just push them away. And I don't want to say thankfully because it's a horrible that I have to even do this, but one way to kind of infiltrate groups that think, you know, human rights are more important than animal rights, bring up the fact that if you care about human rights so much, why are you still okay with animal agriculture happening? Because in slaughterhouses, there are no worker rights. <laughs> You're not going to find any unionized slaughterhouses in Canada. If you do, I would love to see it. I'd love to let them... I would love for me to do a study with them. Let some academics, researchers, professionals, data evaluators, let them engage with you and your workers. Have some open transparency. Let us study what you're actually doing, but that's not going to happen. That disrupts a lot of food systems in the country. That disrupts a lot of rose-tinted lenses of what people think animal agriculture is. And uh, yeah, animal agriculture workers are absolutely victims of this industry too, at least in, in, in slaughterhouses. But I'm going to make the argument in less animal, in less industrial practices as well, because less industrial practices like homesteading, you know, maybe whatever the term, uh, not uh, hobby farms or whatnot, you still have to engage in some pretty messed up relations with animals that, you know, you're not going to be traumatized by having a, a backyard egg chicken necessarily, but you are engaging in a relationship that's a severe power imbalance you know the way that power imbalance you kind of internalize and reproduce to the world by saying it's a benign mutual thing like you're you're normalizing violence and you're doing a disservice to yourself and just kind of society as a whole so even small-scale farming hobby farming whatever you want to call it like there's there's still victims there people themselves are they're normalizing violence that's what that's what it is that's why i'd make the argument that in any way or shape or form that you're farming animals or slaughtering them, you're, uh, humans are definitely getting hurt there as well. I feel like there is an argument, one more argument for veganism here. If you are willing to do the extra mile, to walk the extra mile to get um, fair trade products because you don't want to see farmers getting exploited in uh, um, underdeveloped countries, then why would you not boycott an industry where the workers are exploited, used, and have such poor wages? The list goes on. You made a great portrait of what it's like to work for them. So I feel like this is one more argument um, for, for veganism. Not the most convincing one, but... Yeah. I guess it comes down to the fundamental logic of, you know, if you're against human exploitation, it still makes sense to be closer towards a vegan lifestyle, reduce your consumption of meat, because there's no way to have meat the way we have it in the world right now. There's no way to have dairy or eggs or any of that in the world the way we have it right now without exploiting humans. And I don't care what anybody says in regards to that's the problem with capitalism or industrialization. There is no other industry on this planet, whether it's clothing garments, producing cell phones, where the harms are going to be as drastic and as multifaceted as they are in industrialized animal agriculture. And if you want to do something about that, you know, being vegan, you can hate animals all you want. You can think that eating animals is perfectly fine, but to do it for humans in that way, you know, you are going to see rises in prices for animal products. Put your money at where your mouth is. Not your money. Put your ethics where, walk the walk, essentially. Like, if you're for human rights, reject that kind of violence because it's happening against humans. And it mean, that will mean animal products will cost more, but that's fine. And I don't want to preface that or add on that uh, even if you find a way to make sure every slaughterhouse worker has, uh, what's it called, uh, more labor rights, access to health care, housing, whatever it might be. Even in the most perfect condition, I, I still wouldn't advocate for that. It's just as, as long as the fundamental action of what's being happened to an animal in an abattoir is happening. It's like, it's just, I'm all about workers' rights. It's just, there's not, a, not in an abattoir setting, not in a setting where the fundamental act is violence against animals. Why would you choose that job? I, I, I feel like for all the damage that it is going to, to do to your person, the wage is not a good argument. 
you should be paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars for all that you're risking here, but you're not. I I feel like when you were talking about slaughterhouses, I was thinking about the army, which might be a comparable line of work. But at least with the army, you have like a, a mission, you're doing this for your country, there is a whole um, ethos around it, and you're supported by um, your fellow citizens, and there is a history, there is kind of a nobility around it. And when you're hurt uh, as a soldier, people say thank you for your sacrifice because you have sacrificed yourself. Now, if you're hurt as a slaughterhouse worker, nobody is going to take that attitude with you. Who is going to care? And the thing is, people can't afford to care. The average person can't, because if you do, that means your meat's going to cost more, your eggs and cheese are going to cost more. So it's like, it's a very tricky issue. But I just wanted to comment on like what you were saying about like what motivates someone. Like I think just like it's it's such a complex and frustrating issue because I think about my heritage is Punjabi. Uh, my parents had a dairy farm in India in the middle of the city. And, you know, growing up, it's so normalized. And that's just a cultural thing for my family. <laughs> like, I joke that there's butter in my veins because of my Punjabi heritage. And I think about um, a lot of Muslim communities, Pakistani Muslim communities that uh, sometimes for certain religious festivals, killing goats for in the name of God is seen as something perfectly valid. And it's twisted and it's messed up. But like these individuals genuinely believe that they're doing a service for someone, whether it's feeding the poor, pleasing God, whatever it might be. And it just shows the insidiousness of how animal agriculture and violence towards animal is it's intertwined in every single aspect of our lives, whether it's feeding ourselves, wanting to please God, wanting to do whatever it is. And, you know, this doesn't mean Islam's a bad religion or anything like that. It's just because there's plenty of Muslim vegans out there that, are advocating how the interpretation of Islamic practices that result in um, killing animals for certain holidays, how it's twisted and how it just doesn't logically hold in contemporary society. But that's just an example of how, how that like is, it's just an important thing. Like these individuals don't even look at animals as a being worth consideration because whether it's tradition, whether it's their own ideals that just whatever it might be, they're holding so strong to because you know, they compromise that. Sometimes change can be scary, but like it might mean they have to do various different things that each affect things like economy, affect things like their their family relations or whatever institutions they hold dear to their hearts for. So in regards to why someone can choose to do that, like aside from like the obvious, like someone who might need a paycheck, like some people genuinely think they're doing something good for society, which we're at a fundamental odds here. <laughs> like we just we fundamentally disagree with that. And and I'd like to say we have evidence on our side, but now it comes down to like a social psychology. Like, how do you explain to someone? How do you engage in that kind of dialogue and explain like, yo, what you're doing is not cool, my guy. <laughs> do you feel antagonistic toward those big industries? Because I was recently thinking about silk. Silk produce lots of um, milk, plant-based milk, and they make this amazing mozzarella cheese it's not real cheese, you know, mock cheese, but it's amazing. And I recently discovered that Silk was owned by Danone. And Danone is this big dairy conglomerate, I think. And that made me think, yeah, I, I will still celebrate that. Maybe the, the key to this fight is not so much to be antagonistic toward this industry, but to make it our ally, to convert it to our ideology. What do you think about that? Man, you, you know how to ask some good questions because, <laughs> okay, so I, I first want to acknowledge the humanness of what you're asking because ultimately, you know, put it in the lens of something else. Like I think about it from like a more human history angle. I'm Canadian, but I'm also Punjabi. My family's from India and Punjab. I identify as a Punjabi person as well. Someone were to be like, hey, what can you do to have reparations for all the violence the British Empire inflicted upon you? Would you take it? And a part of me wants to say yes, but like, 
to do that in a contemporary world means a lot of wealth from places like England is going to have to go to India, which aside from all the politics and logistics of that, that's going to actually do anything. It's like, it might end up harming a lot of people as well. And in that same regard, a part of me wants to say, any of you that work in animal testing, that work in dairy production, animal agriculture production, you have lost the right to have any say in what happens next. Like in this new world that I want to build, it sounds so like a cult, <laughs> in a world that I want to build where there's no violence against animals or that it's to the least possible amount, because you'll never get rid of it completely, just like you can't get rid of crime completely. You just try your best every day. It's like those people, those of you that are trying the most to fight against it for your economic, social, religious, psychological, whatever reasons, it's like you don't deserve to have a voice in that. There's a part of me that genuinely believes that. There's a part of me that feels like you, Ryan, our other vegan friends. Anyone feels like that. Because in the same way, I feel like when it comes to human violence, you know, like I I, I, I don't care what British people today have to say or feel about reparations towards colonies that they, you know, cause genocides. And I don't, I don't give two dams what they say. They don't have a, you don't get to have a say in that. You're descendants of uh, your benefactors of blood. But the world doesn't work that way. And I bring myself down to another part of me that says... Everyone is an imperfect ally. You know, when it comes to racism, sexism, classism, someone who's against brown people, black people, I don't want to kill the person. I don't want that person, I want that person to stop what they're doing ultimately. And I want them to, they don't have to love me, stop propagating violence against me. Someone who's being sexist, I don't want them to stop hating men or hating women or whomever. I just, I mean, I want them to stop doing that, but more importantly, I just want the actions to stop. They have those thoughts in their head, that's fine. I want the actions to stop. Same thing with class warfare. You know, I don't want every rich person in the world to be dead. I just want them to stop engaging in activities that do messed up things. So in that same regard, uh, I hate saying it because it feels like I'm betraying someone, but that maybe that's just my ego. You know, I want to make sure my ego is not participating too much, even though sometimes the ego needs its place to speak, but sometimes you need to let your, uh, let your heart speak as well. I feel like at times I don't want Tyson Meats. I don't want Danon or Matt. We insert whatever company that currently messes up animals at a large scale. I don't want them to have a say in this at all. But I'm also recognizing they have a lot of power. And for now, to have better lives for animals or to participate in any steps for, what's it called? Um, you know, a, a better world. They're imperfect allies. That's what they are. And I do think that you place more scrutiny on them and you just hold them accountable to a higher level because... At the end of the day, they'll do it for profit. And if they open up vegan mozzarella products or insert whatever vegan product, they're doing it right now for money and not for ethics. And it's our job to hold them accountable to that. And if they turn their backs tomorrow, don't be surprised. These are not your friends. They're imperfect outliers. You don't have to be friends with your comrades necessarily, but you have to, sometimes you have to acknowledge that they're going to, you, you, you can't kill them. You can't get rid of them. Because yeah, that's just reproducing the same violence they're doing to animals. I don't want that. Just recognize where they are, where their position is towards you, and see how you can get them to change. But keep that scrutiny, always. I like your answer, yeah. <laughs> I, I I mean, I, I kind of agree. And I love that silk mozzarella cheese. Thank you so much <laughs> for that gift. I know what you're talking about. It's pretty good. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay. My next question for you, Varun, is... You know, this podcast, this initiative is to encourage vegans to do more than just be vegan, to make the extra step, to join uh, the fight for animal rights in their own way. What would you say to people who are listening to this conversation and are thinking of maybe following your footsteps and doing something in academia, studying this animal exploitation. <laughs> hey, man, first thing I'm going to say, hey, yo, stay the hell away from academia. That's what I'm talking about, man. Forget academia. <laughs> um, no, uh, okay, look, if you, first and foremost, recognize wherever you are is going to be an uphill battle and make sure you have the resources and coping mechanisms that you need to deal with said uphill battle because it's not going to get easier. I don't care what anyone says. It's getting, life's getting better to a certain extent for vegans, for animals, no, not necessarily. 
recognize that it's going to be an uphill battle, but then don't don't overthink it. Don't overcomplicate it. Think about the steps you can do in your day-to-day lives, not just your personal life because going vegan isn't enough, but think about your professions. Think about your hobbies. How can you incorporate justice for that there? You know, when I'm all about racial justice, I like, I love to see more representation in music, TV, and video games. And I ask for it whenever I have the opportunity, whether it's filling out a survey, talking to my friends about games, and just talking about how, oh man, it sucks that there's not enough uh, brown people in, in movies. Just that right there, that's, you're doing advocacy work right there. Not all advocacy work has to be holding a picket sign somewhere or, you know, being in a, in a court arguing in front of a judge. Advocacy is a very multifaceted thing. It happens in a variety of ways. So the same way that you talk about justice for people because of their race, because of their sex, because of their class, think about how you can do that for animals. And then aside from just that, you know, think about how you, your everyday jobs, this one's really, really just, you can get creative with this. You know, let's say you're a nurse, you're working in a, in a, in a hospital and you, might, you don't have to be vegan, but maybe you want to do a bit of activism for, or maybe you are a vegan nurse, but you want to do a bit of activism, see what you can do to get uh, more vegan options into the hospital. It's one small, small, like piece of the puzzle, but it's, someone's got to do it. Let's say you're working in an office, you're just do, you just do data entry. You have an anti-oppression training. Ask them, so what are we doing to address violence against animals? <laughs> no, I, I bet you a lot of money, no one's going to be asking on a regular basis. <laughs> like, Let's let's say you're a dog walker, man. Like, buy some vegan treats. See if you can get the dog a vegan treat. See if they like it. Introduce it to the owners. Just buy dog treats that are vegan. Offer the dog's owners that you're walking. Uh, be like, hey, your dog loves this. By the, just heads up. You don't have to say that it's vegan. Just be like, hey, I got this treat. Just be sneaky. Be creative. Put your passion into it. And just remember, not all protest and adv- not all advocacy looks like picketing, marching, or in a courtroom. All right, civil rights, we still haven't achieved. We haven't achieved equal rights for all genders. We're still in class warfare every single day. And, you know, the fight against equality for us and justice for us in that regard, it just doesn't happen in the streets. It doesn't happen in courtrooms only. And I don't think it just needs to be that way for animals as well. So I hope everyone decides just be more more active when it comes to that. You know, be political. Vote when you can. Think about it in your day-to-day lives, you know, you know, consume more vegan content. So just consume more content that that is uh, a bit more considerate of animal rights because there's not going to be a lot of it. I'm not saying everyone go watch Dominion or Forks Over Knives or whatever documentary, but, you know, if there's a character that you like because they happen to be vegan or like talk about things like that, like these are these are important things, you know, like as a kid growing up, every time I saw someone brown on TV, I'd talk about them quite a bit. <laughs> like at my favorite TV show, Avatar Last Airbender. I love that television show, <laughs> like, but that's my show. That's my show, man. <laughs> I love you, Ryan. See, I, I saw the look on your face. I saw that's my show. That's your show too. Hey, you know how it is, man. You got to keep it real when it comes to that. It's like, I'm, I'm not saying you have everyone has to go watch these certain shows or whatnot, but uh, just I was bringing that up because uh, as a kid, it was lovely to see a culture like that. That it wasn't exactly all from India, China, Japan, whatever. It just there were different parts of uh, different worlds that were being introduced there. And there was one term, Agni Kai. Agni is a, a word in uh, Hindi. It means fire. And uh, that got me hooked. I talked about the show so much. And that same show, Ang, he says he's vegetarian, but I personally believe he should be vegan because so, just based so, off his logic. But that's a whole different other conversation. But if, like, if I'm, what I'm saying is like, yeah. find these small pockets of things that are important to you because you're already most likely going to be doing it in your life, whether it comes to other things. Just include animals. It's not that complicated. So Agnikai, I think it's that uh, fight with... Like the fire duel. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Avatar, The Last Airbender, because he was vegetarian, and I remember being uh, a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I found it so awesome that he was vegetarian and that he cared for animals because I was always naturally attracted to that. And like, you know, watching that, talking about that, it's activism. You know, when you watched, uh, as a kid, I watched Teen Titans, a character named Beast Boy. He was also vegetarian. <laughs> Not the same as vegan, but it was as close as it got when I was a kid. Talked about tofu. I ate tofu as a kid, culturally. And I talked about it with my friends. I talked about it with people. And like, just some, that that's just one example of how you can engage in that, right? Like, there's so many more avenues. Some of the live music you listen to, regular music you listen to. Find ways you can integrate animals into that. And obviously, people make better choices about who you support. Don't be supporting people that are actively promoting violence against animals. 
don't be uh <laughs> be critical of what you engage but like have fun with it like yo, hey, yo our kids kids are gonna have kids there's still gonna be a, a lot of violence against animals so let's try our best and you know let's let's try to have fun with it while we're here you know let's let's be creative with it <laughs> that was my next question uh do you think that we will witness some amazing positive change in our lifetime or do you think that it will take a few more generations for that uh, i hate this question because okay when i look to evidence around me humanity can take like 90 like a thousand steps forwards but then we'll take 999 steps backwards there's so much progress in civil rights human rights, environmental rights, all these things, but we, there's still so many issues that are wrong with the world as well. And I think about the racism still rampant in our world. I think about the discrimination women face. I think about the messed up things we still do to the land and how people still don't believe in climate change. I think with time, inevitably, things should get better. But the problem is we don't have that much time. <laughs> This isn't like some kind of doom uh, scenario. It's just, we live in a planet with finite resources. And sitting here in Canada, we're going to be fine. We might just face more extreme weather. There's other parts of the world that are, people are going to die. People are going to lose their homes. And animal agriculture is a part of that problem. The violence against animals, the way we treat animals is a part of that problem. And, and I genuinely believe that humans will find a way to kill themselves uh, with our behavior. I genuinely feel that way. But here's my kind of appeal why we still have to give a shit and still be vegan, be anti-racist, be anti-sexist, whatever it is. Man, you can't live life knowing that you can do the right thing and you choose not to do it. I'm not going to go outside and just kick a kid if I see the kid because I just feel like it. I'm not going to just let someone get away with saying a racial slur to someone if I go for a walk outside. So why would I do that for animals? So even if you think the world's going to end and we're not, we're all doomed, do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. There's, we can't live with ourselves any other way. There's So to answer the question, I don't think things will be better. I think we're going to kill ourselves off as a species before that. But I still will do the right thing till my last day because, yo, <laughs> might as well. <laughs> well, I'm more positive than you. I think that I'm more optimistic. God bless. Yeah, I think that, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, just thinking, just talking with vegans who became vegan in the 1980s and sharing with me their experience of what it was like and then reflecting on how we are today and how veganism is accepted and all the progress that we have made in such a short uh, time. I, I just, I am optimistic. I think that we will see some drastic positive change in our lifetime. Yeah. And so, I, I want you to hold on to that because when you <laughs> hold on to that, it might be more likely that people like me, you know, find some solace in that. And if there's ever a chance for me to be more optimistic about this whole situation, it's only because, you know, brothers like you are, are you, you keep that hope alive. And, you know, I, I genuinely hope you and, and myself as well, we, we try our best to enjoy the roses along the way, like find joy where we can, even though, you know, we recognize all the messed up things about the world, but just, I just answered that from like a real honest perspective, but I do like, I, I, I would like to be where you are at and where other people are at where you have a bit of that hope because it's honestly nicer to hope than not. <laughs> you need to talk with older vegans. <laughs> Send them my way, man. There's not, there's not too many of those out in Brampton. <laughs> okay, so Varun, did you have something more to add before we stop this conversation? Uh, just anyone listening, um, don't take my word for anything, all right? I'm not a full-fledged, uh, I haven't completed my PhD yet. And if you think anything I'm saying is full of crap, go verify it for yourselves, all right? There's a lot of literature out there. I believe I sent Ryan some literature to post last time, and, and if he has access to it as well. But anything, any claim I've made, man, go Google it, chat GPT at yourself to see whether it's true, all right? And I wish all of you the best. You as well, right? I hope you got some self-care planned after today. I got my self-care plan. I'm going to take the dog out in the back, listen to some metal, <laughs> just enjoy the weather. Nice. So thank you again, Varun, for having been a guest on this podcast. Thank you so much for this pleasant conversation. And thank you for the great work you're doing against all odds. 
uh, it is truly, you have my respect. I love you as mom, my brother. You're doing amazing work too. I don't ever want you to forget that, all right? But you have, you have an amazing night as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. Varun was kind enough to provide me with a few references from the key scholars studying slaughterhouses and slaughterhouse workers, like Dr. Amy Fitzgerald, who wrote A Social History of the Slaughterhouse from Inception to Contemporary Implications, or Dr. Arnold Arluk, who wrote The Touching, Managing Emotions in an Animal Shelter. So visit the description below and discover their great work. As always, please tell your friends about the show and why you love it so much. Let's inspire more people to take action. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a five stars review. Finally, you can always follow me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you next Tuesday for a new episode.